Well, good morning, church. It's always great to uh, be with you and uh, uh, pray, as always, that uh, everybody is well, everybody's healthy and, you know, is still still thriving and, and flourishing in the Lord. Uh, and before I forget, I do want to wish all the moms, grandmoms, uh, future moms, uh, your moms to be a, a very um, happy Mother's Day. Uh, again, in spite of you know, the situation that we're dealing with, I do pray that it would be a blessed time today and that, um, again, you'd be remembered well and um, uh, just have a blessed day today. This morning, we're going to look at, uh, in our study, the joy of going to church. Um, I deviated from uh, the studies in the life of Christ and the encounters of Christ. And uh, because last week, in talking to and texting friends and family, I often heard the words to this effect, you know, I'm really looking forward to when we can be back in church. I can't wait to go to church again. I miss going to church. And I want to share with you from Psalm 122 this morning. People are longing to go to church again. And so may our desire to be in God's house be more sincere and stronger than ever before. I think this stay-home time has given us a taste of what it would be like to not be able to go to church. And when I heard these comments, you know, it made me think of Psalm 122, verse 1, when David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, your your hand upon our life, God. Father, we're so thankful that uh, we're not in this alone, God, that you're with us every step of the way, God, everything that takes place, everything that's going on. And Father, we do pray that we would find a longing to be in the house of God The Father, it would be different than it was before this whole thing started, God. That we wouldn't take for granted the privilege that we have of going to church, God. Of worshiping you in your house. And so, Lord, may you give us a renewed love, a renewed desire to be in your house, God. To not take it for granted. So, Lord, may your spirit open our ears and our heart to your word, God. And to the moving of the spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm hoping that through this stay-home order, it's caused us to appreciate our privilege of being able to attend church that was probably taken for granted before. But now, in a sense, that it's been taken away for a while, I hope it makes us long to be in the house of God. Christians today don't have to make long trips to holy places to be in God's house in order to praise and worship God. Because the Lord doesn't live in man-made buildings. Nor do we need the kind of, you know, religious amusement or entertainment, whatever you want to call it, that, that draws people to church. You know, the key thing is the heart. It's the heart. The heart that we have toward God. From David's words in this psalm, we can easily recognize the kind of heart that believers need if our worship is going to be pleasing to God. And that is wherever we worship, 
whether it's in the house of God, whether it's in our home, uh, in the hospital, wherever it might be. Psalm in Psalm 120, David was stressing out because he was in a bad neighborhood where the people weren't very friendly toward him. People were talking and they were lying about David. So he leaves that place and he goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the feasts of the Jews. In Psalm 121, David comes within sight of the hills of Judea. He can see Jerusalem where the house of God is. And he keeps going until he reaches the wonderful city of Jerusalem, where the tribes would come together to celebrate the feasts of the Lord. Now, the subject of Psalm 122 is stepping into the presence of God. What Jerusalem was for the Israelites, the church is to the believer. So let's look at Psalm 122, beginning with verse 1 and 2. And the scriptures say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So the first thing that we noticed was joy. The psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. The word glad, it speaks of religious and spiritual rejoicing. Now, as the psalmist said, let's go, uh, let's go, kind of, a, kind of sounds like a casual trip to the local market for some groceries. Uh, and that's because the, 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 it's more like saying to go in the affirmative. In other words, it's not like, hey, let's go to, let's go to the house. It's we're going. We're going to the house of God. And that's a, a better way of saying it. Now, whether this was an invitation to somebody living far away from Jerusalem or, or to David in Jerusalem, the words express there was a determination and a dedication to go to church. We're going to the house of the Lord. After the tent had been set up and the ark was put as was placed into it, no doubt David went there to worship God. And he went there often because David's love for God's house was well known. In Psalm 27, verse 4, it says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In Psalm 65, 4, the psalmist said, Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple. Psalm 100, verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. David rejoiced, man. He was happy at the chance to go with other worshipers to praise the Lord. David lived in Jerusalem and he didn't have to go far to get to the tent where the ark was placed. And even though he lived in the holy city, David didn't take this privilege for granted because he had a heart for God. And he had a heart for God's house. 1 Samuel 13, 14 says that David was a man after God's own heart. So the traveler who was coming from far away wouldn't complain about the journey. Because you see, his heart was set on the Lord. And you know what? When we truly love God and we love his house and we love worship and we love his command, you know, love makes burdens lighter. They make long distances shorter. They make hard times easier. 
And I hope that this time that we've been, you know, separated from the house of God and separated from each other that, that, and separated from the corporate fellowship and worship of God with each other, that it has caused our love to grow more for him and more for each other. Because here we have the pleasure that David and other devout Israelites had in going to and attending worshiping God in public services. And the invitation to them was very welcome to go there. David was so glad. And he would have, and he would have every Israel, uh, Israelite to say the same thing, that they were glad when he was called on to go up to the house of the Lord. Now, notice, it's the Lord's will that we should worship him together as one body. And that many should join together to worship him in public services. We should worship God in our own houses, of course. And that's exactly what, what most of us have been doing for the last several weeks. You know, as, as requested by, you know, our, our government leaders. But that's not enough. We also need to go to the house of the Lord, our church, to pay our praise and our worship to him there. Going to God's house, you know, it can be a drag or it can be a pleasure. And it all depends on one's heart for God. You know, it is, a, is it a drag to go to the house of God? You know, maybe it was before. Uh, but, but maybe now, hopefully, we see that, that man, I, I'm longing to be in the house of God. For David to go to the house of God, it was a great pleasure. And as a traveler who was, who was attending any of the, one of these three great uh, yearly festivals, they rejoiced. Because they got to worship in God's house with God's people. And I think we find worship to be a drag. If we find worship to, to be a drag, it's because we have unconfessed sin. Or our love for God has grown cold. We've become lukewarm. But if we're close to God and we enjoy his presence and we enjoy one another, that is his people, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be chomping at the bit to go to the house of God, to worship and to praise him. Our attitude toward God will determine the way we look at worship, the way we look at church. This also reminds us of the psalmist's words in Psalm 84, verse 1 and 2. The psalmist said, how lovely is your tabernacle. The word is admirable. How loving is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. It seems that the psalmist couldn't go to Jerusalem for some reason. For some reason, he just wasn't able to make it. And I think it's it kind of like us right now for the time being. We just, we're not able to make it to the house of God. And David, or, or, or the psalmist here, uh, wasn't able to go to celebrate uh, uh, these three feasts. The temple, he said, is lovely, and he dearly loved it. And the temple is lovely and dearly loved by all who love the Lord. Because it was the dwelling place of the Lord. Because it was his house. It was the place where his glory dwelt. And even though God doesn't live in man-made buildings today, we still show a special reverence for buildings that are dedicated to the Lord. Now, as we know, we can worship God anytime, anywhere. But special places and special services are important in our worship of him. The important thing is that we have a heart devoted to God. That we have a spiritual appetite that desperately cries out for nourishing fellowship with the Lord. 
as the psalmist says in 40, uh, Psalm 42, verses 1 through 4, the New Living Translation, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? And that's the question we're all asking. Be praying. Being praying for that day when we can gather again, again in God's house. And so again, it says, day and night, I have only tears for food while my enemies continually taunt me saying, where is this God of yours? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of a great celebration. As these travelers would meet or go head towards Jerusalem uh, uh, to, to, to go to these, these yearly feasts, you know, they'd go along and then they'd meet another group coming along the road and they'd go further and they'd meet another group going along the road. And there would just be this huge gathering of believers rejoicing and having this blessed fellowship on the way to the house of God. This psalmist here cried out for God with every fiber of his being. You know, in Psalm 84, it says that he even envied the birds. Imagine that. Because the birds were nesting in the temple courts. <clears throat> they were near the altar. And the psalmist envied them, the birds, for that. And he envied the priests and the Levites who lived and worked in those sacred places. It's really easy for us to take for granted this privilege that we have to worship the living God. It's a privilege that was purchased for us on the cross. And I wonder, you know, again, I, I'm sure that many of us have wondered why. Why this has happened? Why is this going on? And I never thought I would see something like this in my lifetime. But I wonder, you know, if God through this or, or part of it is for us to see. You know, that, that, that this privilege we have of worshiping God should not be taken for granted. And how quickly and how easily we could lose it. The psalmist doesn't tell us how lovely the tabernacle was because the way he felt for the tabernacle, man, his words couldn't describe what was going on in his heart. He couldn't describe the feelings that he had. They were beyond expression. You know, the house, the house of God to the, to the psalmist was lovely in his, mem in his in memory. It was lovely, lovely to his memory, uh, to, to his mind, to his heart. It was, it was lovely to the eye, to his whole being. When he saw the saints gathered together, it was just a beautiful thing. There's nothing more beautiful or more exciting on earth than when believers get together to worship God. The whole temple to the psalmist was lovely. The outer court, the inner court, it didn't matter. You know what? And it shouldn't matter. You know, where we meet, what it looks like, because it's God's house. He's going to be there. The psalmist loved every part of the tabernacle. He loved every cord, every curtain, every nut bolt, every fastener, every pole, every dedicated thing, every piece of furniture, everything was dear to him. Even from far away, he got excited when he remembered that sacred place, the tent where Jehovah God revealed himself, where he cried out with excitement while he lovingly remembered the holy services and ceremonies that he had seen there. And that he had experienced there in the past. He says, because it's your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. Because it's your tabernacle, God, is what makes it so dear to me. And because this is God's house should make it so dear to us.
David says, it's, or, or, it's where your people, Lord, gather and where all eyes are focused. But Jerusalem, and it can only be an earthly type of the heavenly city to come. But you know what? It still brought joy to the heart of those travelers as they arrived in Jerusalem, which is what Psalm 122 verses 1 and 2 describes. Just imagine the psalmist. He's now standing at the gates of Jerusalem. After his long, tiring trip, he's come from far away and he's never seen a real city before. Looking around at everything that he sees. He sees the marketplace. He sees the homes of the rich and the poor who are living in Jerusalem. He sees the huge walls around the city. He's just in awe of everything that he sees. And there were some things, specific things, that impressed him as he stood there all excited and happy inside Jerusalem's gates and walls. One of them was, in verses 3 and 4, the unity. Look at verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 122. It says, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. It was the unity that was there with the people. When the psalmist speaks about Jerusalem as a city that's compact together, he could be talking about a couple of things. If it was written by David, it was written before there were a lot of kings in Israel's life. And he could have been talking about the actual city, a setting of the city. While David was king and sometimes after, Jerusalem was a small city. It was located on the top of Mount Zion and Mount Moriah. And it was surrounded by two uh, sides, uh, by steep cliffs to the Kidron and Tyropian valleys, uh, no more than half a mile wide, half a mile wide. It had an impressive setting for somebody who was approaching it from far away. And its compact structure would have impressed anyone that was looking at it. And yet the psalmist, he's not thinking about its physical shape. He sees the physical compactness of the city, but it's just a good way of mentioning the role that Jerusalem played or had played in compacting and unifying the nation. The reason for everybody from all tribes to go up to Jerusalem was to worship the one true God of the nation, Jehovah. Jehovah had called them into existence by his blessing on Abraham, by his deliverance of the people from Egypt, and by his giving the people his laws on Mount Sinai. Spiritual unity was the important thing here, no matter what tribe you were from. Every Jew came to Jerusalem to worship the one true and same God. Listen to Psalm 133, which is a psalm describing unity. And the psalmist says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Psalm 133 has been called a psalm of brotherhood. And it's a psalm about fellowship. It's a psalm about unity. Not only did this traveler come to Jerusalem with his wife and his children, but with his friends. They're having a wonderful time of fellowship together. And these travelers came from all over the, the, the then known world. And they'd, been suffer- and they'd also been suffering persecution among the unbelievers. So what a joyful experience it is for them to be with their own people worshiping God together. 
Now, we all heard the, uh, the, the expression e pluribus unum. Uh, it's used on the great seal of the United States, and it's used on several uh, U.S. coins. E pluribus unum means one out of many. One out of many. That used to be the American way, the American dream. The United States of America, one nation under God. And America has been called the, the melting pot of the world. But can we say that, that that's true this morning? I don't think so. It doesn't take long to find out that unity isn't that easy to achieve. And today, whatever unity we did have, I think we see it's deteriorating. And it's deteriorating because of selfishness. It's deteriorating because of competing and because of hostile people selfishly wanting their own way. And it's not all that different even in the church, unfortunately, where we're supposed to be one in Christ and one with each other, where we preach about unity all the time. And we sing about unity. But the church fellowship, I think, in unity is deteriorating as well. This psalm, Psalm 133, is about unity about the unity of those who live together as brothers and sisters. As believers, we're told, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 3, Paul tells us as believers, we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the word endeavor means to spare no effort. It means whatever we have to do, that is without compromising the gospel, we are to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If somebody wants to quarrel with me, I don't quarrel back and vice versa. Believers are, are one in Christ and, and we need to avoid being in our little cliques. And unfortunately, there are a lot of cliques in churches today. Many people would rather be doing their own thing than doing things together. But just think of how much better it would be for all believers, as it says in Psalm 133, to dwell together in unity. Man, unity is a gift from God. The picture that, that David uses is anointing oil in Psalm 133. Specifically, the anointing of Aaron, the high priest. Anointing was done at God's command, and it was done in his way, and it was done with his authority, and any blessing it came with came from God. We read three times in Psalm 133 the words, running down. Running, it emphasizes that the blessing of Aaron's anointing was from above, coming down from God. We are sinners. And one of the first sad signs of sin is that it separates. It separates. It creates conflict. It creates hostility. And it takes God to overcome sin and bring harmony again. All real, real lasting unity is from the Lord. And unity is for all. The second picture the psalmist uses in Psalm 130 is the dew of Mount Hermon falling on Mount Zion. Mount Hermon was the highest mountain in Israel, several hundred miles north of Jerusalem. And it was recognizable because of the dew, the dew that fell on its peaks. Now here, that dew is also said to fall on Zion, which wasn't very high. So that dew fell on the highest peaks and the lowest peaks. And like the earlier picture, dew comes from above. 
And it shows that unity is from God. And the main point of this picture is that the dew falls on the little as well as on the big. It falls on the great and it falls on the small. It's not about the refreshing character of the dew, nor its gentle worldwide influence. That's the important thing about the dew. The reason it's such a good picture of brotherly harmony is because it falls equally on both mountains, on both men, small and great. God's grace falls on everyone. When a country or a church or even a family is at peace, it doesn't just benefit the most important people, but it benefits everybody the same. Everybody's blessed, and especially the small especially the unimportant and the weak. And it's the same way when it comes to disharmony. Disharmony hurts everyone, the weak and the great. The blessing of unity flows from one person to another. The anointing of Aaron was a blessing from God for him. But he was the high priest, which meant he in turn would bless others. It says the oil running down from his beard, running down on the edge of his garments. It also suggests the flow of the blessing. There's even the hint that since the oil was precious oil, that the best oil blended with myrrh, cinnamon, and cane and cassia in Exodus chapter 30, the anointing would have been sweet smelling because of the ingredients. And because the ingredient is God, it comes from God. It will be sweet smelling. And that... that that precious oil that's mentioned there in Exodus uh, 30, it, it, it would have filled the air wherever Aaron went. And in Exodus 30, 33, this special oil is called perfume. We should be a sweet smelling savor to the Lord and to one another. And then lastly, one, Psalm 133 speaks of everlasting life. Some things are, are good for us, but you know, they're not always pleasant. And there are other things that are pleasant, but they're not always good for us. And then there, there, other things are pleasant, but not good for us. But the unity that we have as God's people, it is good and it's pleasant. Unity is, again, is to be what, what we would all want. And it should be what we see in our, in our nation. Our country was a place where different people willingly blended together with similar goals to form a common future. That was the old America. Today, it's not that way. Today, it's all about me. It's all about individualism. People no longer work for harmony. Instead, they struggle with each other for their own advantage, group advantages, for individual rights. I mean, all you have to do is turn on the TV right now and just see what's going on in our world. The hatred for different groups of people, the Democrats and the Republicans and and those on each side. You know, we're we're like enemies, you know, from a foreign country. You know, I'd say in the 60s that something sad has happened to America and how they relate to other people. Before that time, there was still something of a Christian attitude in this country. Christian values, even those that weren't Christians, they would uphold Christian values. Things that people used to care about. 
A time when people used to help other people. And again, as I've been thinking over this time that we've been, you know, not, not able to come to church. Again, maybe God's doing something with us. Maybe God wants us to look back and, and, and he wants us to, to, to look back to those days as we go through this pandemic together. Kind of, a, you know, one for all and all for one thing. Looking out for each other again, because we because at that time they believed that was the right thing to do. And it is. And we're told in, in Scripture to look out for one another, to care for one another, to lift up one another's burdens, to share one another's burdens. Maybe the Lord had to separate us like fighting children to make us think about being nice to one another, to help one another, to love one another. Because today, the majority of people focus on themselves and they deal with others only because they have to. And or what they can get out of them. Does thinking about ourselves really make us happy? Does really just taking care of our own selves, you know, really make us happy? If we focus all our energy on satisfying ourselves, does that really satisfy us? The individualism today has just about destroyed families and friendships, making us kind of lone rangers, so to speak doing my own thing. The family, which is the most important social institution, has been terribly, terribly redefined in the world's mind. Friendship has become so superficial. It's strained and it's broken over the slightest disagreement or difference. Rules, rivalry, hostility, fear. It's all placed the affection of love. And forgiveness, loyalty, that keeps friendships going. America today has become one huge antisocial community. Our churches should be a sanctuary of fellowship and love and unity. And yet, sad to say, we see individualism even in the church. A lot of people drive to church, they listen to Christian radio, they listen to the sermon, they say hi to all of their friends, and then they go home without really experiencing true fellowship. Earlier, Christianity was so focused on corporate spirituality that communion was taken from the same cup. Think about that. We can't do that today. I mean, we can't even shake hands. We can't even walk within six feet of each other today. We listen to study after study about spiritual gifts and how the body of Christ is supposed to work together. And yet our services are often made up of people who have their own agenda and purposes. We've already learned that unity comes from God. We can't create unity. We, we, we don't create unity. All right? But we are responsible for keeping it. We're responsible for keeping unity. Paul says, again, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't create it. We're responsible for keeping it. But it can only be kept when all of us 
young and old, male and female, get outside of ourselves. Esteem others higher than ourselves. See that there's a higher and more worthy cause than just me, than just satisfying me. The Bible shows us the way back to those those basics. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God said in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. And yet we're doing our best to be alone. God wanted man to live with, with relationships and he wanted us to live in harmony. So he created woman with whom the man would be able to share God's goodness and the joys that God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve did share God's goodness for for a while. They shared his joy until sin caused mutual disharmony and blaming each other for their sin. And in the New Testament, when Jesus established the, the, the new people of God, You know, he just didn't leave them to to figure things out for themselves. He didn't just leave them to do what they thought was the right thing to do. But he brought them into a new fellowship. And that is the Christian church. And Jesus prayed for the church. And one thing that he prayed for was for God to give his people unity. Listen to what Jesus said in John 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus said, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they will all be one as you, Father, and I are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect and one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Unity is a picture of the, of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one in agreement. Now, this isn't a man-made or a a forced unity. It's a unity that's based on a mutual relationship in Jesus Christ and His Word. And it's equal to the unity that's in God. And when you study the book of Acts and the history of the early church, we find Jesus' prayer answered in the fellowship that was formed in Jerusalem after his resurrection and ascension. Listen to what Luke said about that church in Acts 2.42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The church is the New Testament type of the relationship that's pictured in Psalm 133. And it was a local city church as well. And it was also a huge church. Remember, 3,000 people were added at Pentecost. And it started with 12 people, the apostles. But the church grew even more because all of the people shared the ministry. They shared the ministry. It wasn't just left left to certain people, the leaders or just certain people. They all shared in the ministry of Jesus Christ. One of the most amazing things about this church, the New Testament church, was its commitment to fellowship. That means unity. They had the same mind. Fellowship has to do with holding something in common. Christian fellowship means common participation in God. And this is what had drawn the early Christians together. 
John said in 1 John 1, 3 and 4, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Someone said this, the stronger your vertical fellowship is, the stronger your horizontal fellowship will be. That is, the stronger your fellowship is with God, the stronger your fellowship will be with one another. And the church here, man, that's a, the church here in Acts 2 is a great example of this. Because these believers had strong, a strong relationship with God. Thus, they had a strong relationship with one another. It resulted in strong relationships. And we see some things, we see four things mentioned in the description of the early church in Acts 2, 42 through 47. It, it points out the, the apostles' doctrine, that is the teaching of the word of God. Real unity or fellowship can only be recognized around a common set of convictions. We all have to have the same belief, the same convictions, and that would be in the word of God. That's the standard for all of us and the same beliefs when it comes to the word of God. This is what drew the believers together in the early church. This is what drew them together in their fellowship. And this, is what, this was the common devotion that they had to the teaching of the word of God, to the apostles' teaching. This is the, notice, this is the first thing that Luke mentions in this passage. The first thing he pointed out, the importance of the apostles' doctrine, the teaching of the word of God. The disciples devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. They're not rejoicing in what happened in the past they're not rejoicing in signs and wonders they're not rejoicing in past experiences of pentecost instead they're rejoicing notice in the word of god this is always the first sign of a spirit-filled church a lot of people see think you think that a spirit-filled church is people speaking in tongues and laying hands on people falling down and just doing all no the first sign of a spirit-filled church is always that it devotes itself to the apostles' teaching. It's a learning church. A spirit-filled church is a learning church that backs up what it does, backs up its experiences from Scripture. And it tests them by Scripture. The second thing that Luke points out in the uh, early church in Acts is the fellowship. Love for the word of God led these believers to love one another too. Which meant they had a real unity as God's people. The most important thing about them individually and as a group was their devotion to the teaching of God's word. Because of the teaching of God's word, they cared for one another. They even shared their material possessions with each other and they gave generously to all of those who were in need. The third thing that we see is that the worship, the worship of God. In this early church, there was the breaking of bread and prayer. Breaking of bread. That stands for the communion service and prayer, even though it's something we can do individually and at any time. It's in this passage, it's actually the formal exercise of prayer in the congregation. It says here that these Christians dedicated themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They got together to observe the Lord's Supper, to pray and to praise God. And then in Acts 2, 46, it says they did this in the temple formally. That is together as a body of believers. Now, verse 43 said they did it in the homes informally, which, you know, we're doing now. 
They had informal and formal worship. Now, going back to verse 5 of Psalm 122. Here's another thing that impressed the psalmist in Psalm 122. As he stood inside Jerusalem's gates, it was justice. In other words, fairness. It says in verse 5, For thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Jerusalem was the center for giving out legal justice to the people. That is, you know, fair treatment. So the people had a reason to, to be in love with Jerusalem because that's where they got fair treatment. Because justice was administered fairly there by a man after God's own heart. And, and the common good of the people was as well protected you know, their, their, their physical needs were as well protected as their spiritual concerns. And they were very happy there in their courts of justice where they were all treated fairly. Again, this is, you know, they were set up there in Jerusalem. Those, the thrones were, of justice were set up there in Jerusalem. And then in Psalm 122, verses 6 through 8, the psalmist saw the need for peace. Notice it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. That is, I will seek the good of Jerusalem. The world needs justice today. It needs fairness. It needs righteousness. It seems, it seems that, that getting fairness today, righteousness or just, it's hard to find. And the psalmist probably recognized that it, he probably recognized too that, and that's why he writes about it there. And he prays this promise to seek justice. He says, I promise I'm going to pray to seek this justice. But, there, but there's never going to be, there never will be true righteousness justice, fairness, or lasting peace without justice. Again, justice is hard to get. That's why he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem in verse 6. And he asks others to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So in closing, all of this applies to believers today because we're God's people. We're citizens of heaven. So we need to pray for one another and for the ministry of the churches. We belong to each other. We need each other. We need to help each other. We have a special relationship to each other because of our special relationship to Jesus Christ. We need to pray for peace within and among the churches. We must pray for the needs of our brothers and our friends and our enemies. We must definitely pray for the lost. A heart for God will surely be a heart that's filled with praise and prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, God. And Lord, I pray that, Lord, your spirit would bring to our minds God, the purpose of the church, the purpose that we have in the church, how we're to serve one another in the church, Lord. And let us not take it for granted, God, the gift, the privilege that we have, God, of going to church. 
And Father, I pray that this time that we've had at home, Lord, and the limited time that we've had to church, God, that it would cause us to think, that it would cause us to be thankful. God, to give you glory and honor for the privilege of being able to worship you, Lord. And that, God, when we get together again, Lord, that, Lord, we would praise you and worship you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind, God. Give you the glory that you so deserve, God. And not just sing the songs from our mouth, but sing them from our heart, God. To come before you with pure and holy hands, God. And Lord, we just thank you for your love and your grace. And we thank you even for, for, for such a time as this. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.